The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I have a, pat, a, a portion of scripture to share with you today that is terrifying. And we're going to look today at the two witnesses. We're going to ask some questions about it and see if we can come to some understandings. Now, as a child, I listened to preachers talk about Revelation. And they all seemed very clear about the meaning of Revelation. But as a child and with my father, we would read the book of Revelation and we'd say, wait a minute, 
doesn't really say that, does it? And I began in the book of Revelation to understand that people would say they understood and they would make wonderful claims about the book of Revelation that would not play out in history and time, and they were proven wrong. Like, I remember Mr. Nixon was called by many the Antichrist. They thought Hitler was the Antichrist. Well, all of them were Antichrist, but they were not the Antichrist. And I learned to be very cautious about even preaching from the book of Revelation, even though I love it. I studied theology. I have a undergraduate degree in theology and communications. And in that degree, I had to take a course on the book of Revelation, Daniel and Revelation. And then when I went to seminary and graduate school, I had to take another course, Daniel and Revelation. But I had the same problem there. Much of what they said about Revelation simply was not borne out in the scriptures. I'm not a very complicated man. I take the scriptures at face value. I don't try to spiritualize the the words of Scripture. I don't try to make them symbols unless it's clear that that's what they are. I read it, and I take it for what it says and what it means. We're going to look at some very controversial things today. But I want to tell you right up front, The book of Revelation does not tell us explicitly when Jesus is coming again. Now, it seems that there are two comings of Jesus, and some teach that there are even three comings of Jesus, including the final destruction of the wicked, as Jesus and the saints come on the horses, the armies of God, to do the final work of freeing the earth from the devil and the final judgment. I can't give you a definitive answer out of the book of Revelation for when Jesus comes. I've heard many people try to give that definitive answer, even giving a time in in history. I don't do that, but I do study carefully, and I read almost every day, I read the book of Revelation, because I want to understand it, and I pray for insight and understanding. I pray that God will open my mind. So, today I'm not coming to you as one who says, thus saith the Lord. I am coming to you as a Bible student who is endeavoring to understand the sacred word of God to help me know how to walk righteous before him. That spirit of Antichrist is so slippery and so deceptive, and it loves to hide in people who think they have all the answers. It's hard. It's hard to deal with a person who is so full of themselves and their answers And so, sure, they're right. It's hard for me to deal with that kind of person. I think it's time for us to humble our hearts before Almighty God and admit that we don't have all the answers. We do have some of the answers. I'm going to share some of those very clear answers with you today. Now, as we begin, let's pray. Lord, I come as a student of your word, as a lover of the scriptures. But most of all, I come as a lover of you, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. It is you that I desire to keep my eyes upon. It is you I desire to follow. 
for it is you, Jesus, who has won my heart and changed my life and restored to me what the devil has stolen. It is you who has forgiven me for my sin. It is you who has made me into a new creature. Lord, I love you. And I don't come with any level of assurance that I'm right, but I come with every assurance that you're right, Jesus. And I will take your word at face value and try to understand. And I will follow you, even though stumbling sometimes, missing the mark. But Lord, I love you. You have won my heart. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for carrying me through this very difficult time in my life as I learned to just depend upon you and no arm of flesh, especially my own. Lord, thank you. I worship you, Jesus, with my brothers and my sisters. We worship you, Jesus. Thank you, my Lord. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Malachi, the third chapter, begins to talk to us about the day of judgment that's coming. And then when we come to the fourth chapter, he concludes it in this way. This is Malachi, the fourth chapter. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under your feet. On the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the last word of the prophets of the Old Testament until we come to John the Baptist 400 years later. For 400 years, Israel heard no word from God. They had the testimony of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They had the testimony of what we call the minor prophets only because they're short, not because they're minor in any way. And then they had the final word from, from Malachi. In many ways, the book of Malachi is very much a connection to the New Testament. Much of what is said in the book of Malachi is directly for the Jews at the time of Jesus' coming. Now let's go to the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. I want you to hear exactly what the scriptures say about these two witnesses. I think we need to carefully, with prayer and humility, hear the actual word that Jesus gave us regarding these two witnesses. 
Now, I do want to say before I read this that I believe that the coming of the two witnesses is under the first woe of Revelation. And I believe the woes come after Jesus comes for the Gentile Christians. I believe that the entire work of God in the end time is summarized in the seven trumpets of God. It is the schematic outline. And then after you pass that, you begin to find vignettes for the remaining part of the book of Revelation. They are not given in order. They're like acts in a play, and they're very difficult to place exactly where they're going to be. You can, as you study, begin to make certain conclusions, like the final plagues that are poured out, the seven last plagues that are poured out are obviously at the very end of time under the old earth that we see. But let's just read the two witnesses, for they are under the beginning of the woes of judgment that have come upon the earth. I don't know where they fit in the whole scheme, but I suspect they fit under the seventh seal of God that is opened by Jesus. This is Revelation, the 11th chapter. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go, measure the temple of God and the altar and the court and the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. In scripture, olive oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the lampstands are also symbols of the Holy Spirit and of the church. Verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Well, who are these two witnesses? We don't know. Much speculation about who they are. I personally think they may very well be Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. Verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street in the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So obviously they're going to prophesy in the city of Jerusalem. This is a final message to the Jewish people. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation 
will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. How can that be? Well, today we have television. News is beamed all over the world. So, this will be beamed everywhere in the world. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because of the two prophets. They have tormented those who live on the earth. And the plagues that were used were probably very similar to the plagues that Moses used in the hand of God against Egypt. And now they have died. They have borne faithful witness. They have rebuked the powers of darkness, and they have rebuked the Jewish people for not believing their Messiah. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Now the question has been raised, are these real people? Are they real men? I think it's a foolish question. If we take the simple hermeneutic that we take literally the scriptures when they seem to be literal, that is the best understanding we can come to. And the two witnesses are spoken of in Scripture as being very literal. And the book of Malachi even prophesied the coming of Elijah and his mission to turn the heart of the children to the Father and the heart of the Father to the children. In other words, a call for the family of God. They have been murdered as the Lord has allowed them to be murdered and they lay in the street probably with a puddle of blood. They lay in the street where they have bled out And the government refuses to allow them to be buried because they are objects of scorn. There is great celebration among the wicked. See, all of this is about Satan taking over the earth. He wants to take over the earth and claim it as his own. But there is one who stands in the heavenlies And he has the title deed to earth in his hands. And it is a scroll that has seven seals on it. And as he opens these seven seals, the earth is purged. The earth is cleansed. And finally, Satan will be utterly destroyed. And these two witnesses come to speak the final word of God to the Jewish people. Now, if you look at Revelation, the 14th chapter, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. The third angel followed him and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, and I believe that to be a literal mark, 
He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, those who obey the commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Now, it's, it seems clear that these angels, and by the way, angel simply means messenger. I've wondered if the message in the air will be on the airwaves like radio right now or internet right now. These are the three final messages to the people of earth. I believe sequentially these come before the coming of the two witnesses and before the final decision is made for Jesus to come and redeem the Gentile Christians from the earth. We then have... A description in chapter 14. I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 that had been redeemed from the earth. So when you come to the 14th chapter, already those sealed, those Jewish people sealed in the 144,000 are now in heaven. And after that, we have the final seven last plagues, the wrath of God poured out without measure upon the earth. Now, I'm trying to understand these things. I'm trying to place them in some kind of correct sequence. But I believe that everything is concluded in the eighth chapter of Revelation, under the seventh seal. Because then the trumpets begin to blow. And under that seventh seal, the two witnesses will come. Before that, the final proclamation to the earth and the coming of Jesus Christ to redeem his people. Now, is there a, is there a, a gathering up of God's people before this? Many say, yes, I don't know. I find scriptures that seem to indicate that that's a possibility. And I'm very interested in knowing, when does Jesus come? If I look at Matthew 24, it's clear that his coming is going to be a glorious coming. And every eye will see him. Where does that fit in the book of Revelation? I'm not certain. And frankly, if you say you're certain, I suspect... You're seeing that out of intellectual pride and not Holy Spirit confirmation. I want to warn you and warn me to be very careful with the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and other prophetic utterances. It is very easy to become self-assured and proud 
and say things that history demonstrates they simply were not true. But there is an aspect that I do want to speak with you about. And I want to be very clear with you about it. When Jesus was upon the earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, every one of us, as sons and daughters of Adam, face death. And death holds much fear for the wise. I hear people who say, I'm not afraid to die. You should be terrified of dying. Because after you die, the window of heaven will be eternally closed for you if you have not been bathed in the blood of Jesus and walked pure and clean before him. Your time of probation will be at an end. I was called to a hospital room by a family to visit Dad. He was not a believer. They asked me to please address his salvation. They said, we have addressed it many times, and he has utterly rejected us. Pastor, would you come and address it with him? I came into the hospital room. I came immediately to his bed. And I said to him, your family has asked me to come and speak with you, knowing that you will soon pass. For he had made a decision that he would not continue a treatment that was preserving his life. He had made the decision that he would no longer have his blood purified and that when the poison reached a certain level, he would simply pass. And he'd made that decision, and he had about three hours to live. He said to me, I know why you're here. You've come to talk to me about my soul. Well, Pastor, I don't want you to worry about my soul. I don't believe there is a heaven, and I don't believe there is a hell. And I am not afraid to die. I have lived a good life. I've had a wonderful time. I've had a wonderful family. I'm grateful that they're all here with me now in the room, but I have no fear of death. For there is nothing after I die but an eternity of silence. And I will have had a very enjoyable life. I said to him, Are you certain that there is nothing after you die? Yes, I'm absolutely Have you been there? No. Have you talked to someone who's been there? No. Eternity is silent. It is empty. It is devoid of meaning. I said, aren't you taking a grave risk? What if you meet the God of heaven on the other side of your death and he judges you for your sin and he casts you into the fires of hell? And his response was, I'll just spit in his face. And he laughed. He said, Pastor, don't waste your time with me. Don't waste your prayers with me. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. I'm going into the silence of eternity, and I'm fine with that. So ended our conversation. I walked away. The family came out with me, and I prayed with them. I prayed for him and his soul. And soon he passed. And the family asked me to please come and do his funeral. It was one of the saddest funerals I've ever attended. 
I told the story of what he had said and urged those in the congregation to stand in faith that they could be saved and not end up as this man would end up in the fires of hell. Jesus offered up the perfect son of the living God, offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, or once being made mature, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, not all who love him. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews goes on to say, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. Verse 7, land that drinks in the rain, often, often falling on it, and that produce a crop useful to those for whom it was formed, farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed and in the end will be burned. So, these two witnesses come at the end of time under the woes. And they come to speak to all of Israel. They don't come to preach to the Christian church. They don't travel. They stay in Jerusalem. And there they preach to the Jewish people. Because there must be a transition in the Jewish people's heart where they will finally come and accept Jesus Christ and his priestly role. Now, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that you must have solid food, but that's for people who are willing to begin to deal with the question of righteousness, innocence, holiness. And they must be People who have, by constant discipline, trained themselves to know the difference between good and evil, and who will not be swayed by the evil desires of our human flesh and give way to every kind of uncleanness. Now, this is difficult because there is in every one of us a desire for that which is unclean. It comes out of our feeling not loved. It comes out of the wounds of our heart. It comes out of the experiences we've had, the background we come from. But it also comes out of just the wicked Antichrist spirit. And if you read carefully Romans 12 or Romans 6, it talks about being crucified with Christ and that old man of sin being destroyed. 
Now, what this these witnesses do in in Revelation, the 11th chapter, it says they come prophesying. Now, to prophesy is to is to speak forth, to speak the word of God in such a manner that it brings conviction and certainty that what they say will come to pass. So certainly what these two witnesses are sharing is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And if you look carefully in the book of Hebrews, after he says, look, let's go on. Let's go on in depth. Let's go to the ability to distinguish between good and evil. Well, what does he do to go on? Well, you'll find the rest of chapter 5, the re- or the rest of chapter 6, is going to talk about the priesthood of Jesus. He's going to talk about how we have an anchor for our soul that enters into the the most holy compartment of the sanctuary. We spoke of this yesterday. Now, the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to address the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of that blood to deliver us from all sin. That's why the book of Hebrews is often not preached on in the church today, because most modern Christians don't want to talk about the blood, and they don't want to talk about obedience and holiness and righteousness. They want to walk in their flesh. They want to walk in the pleasures that the devil has to offer them under the Antichrist spirit. And for that reason, most churches in America are filled with the Antichrist spirit, and the pastors also have a very powerful Antichrist spirit that mixes, as Aaron did, the altar of the Lord with the pagan fertility calf and prosperity calf of Egypt. And so as we come to this ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews. I want to read for you verse 26. This is Hebrews 9, 26. Christ then would have had to have suffered many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus came to do away with sin. Look at the book of 1 John. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. The word in the Greek for take away is literally to lift up. So I have here a a bottle of water on my desk. I can set that down and it's sitting now on my desk, but I can also pick it up off the desk and it's no longer on the desk, right? Is this bottle of water on the desk? No. I picked it up. Well, likewise, in the Greek, Christ was sacrificed once to lift up the sins of many people. That is to remove the sin, to lift it up from them, to take it up. He will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And the word bear in the Greek
is to separate from. And so it says he will appear a second time, not to separate from sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I hear people say, you know, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not going to quit sinning until Jesus comes. And when he comes, when I die, somebody just said that to me yesterday. It's a clear violation of what Romans 6 says and also what Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 28 says, that he's not going to come the second time to separate me from my sin. Holiness is always spoken of in the present tense. He comes to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Well, now, verse 4 of chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But if you look at verse 10, and by that will we have been made holy, hagios, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Our salvation, our release from sin is found in the broken body of Jesus on the cross. It is his shed blood. Since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So when we come to these witnesses, they are finally coming to speak boldly to the Jewish people. And out of that speaking to the Jewish people, 144,000 will be sealed. That is, they will follow the Lamb. They will be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now I want to read one more passage for you. This is the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us now consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that was that sanctified him and who, who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we, for we know him who said, Is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. I'm sure that that's the message these two witnesses were preaching to the Jewish people. And after these two witnesses bear their witness and people have made their decision and been sealed with the mark of the Lord God of heaven, it says, at that very hour, 
there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed, that is, of Jerusalem. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified, gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed and the third woe is soon to come. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has come, has become the kingdom of our Lord and our, and of our, and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the Lord begins the final judgment upon the earth. The word of God is a burning word. And you now have the opportunity to make a decision to utterly surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Now, many of you call yourselves Christians, but you have believed that you can continue and that you must continue in your sin until Jesus comes and then somehow He's going to separate you from your sin. I've shared with you the scriptures in Hebrews that say that's simply not going to happen. It's a myth. We must be separated now. We must be washed in the blood now. These two mighty witnesses, probably Elijah and Moses, have come and they have prophesied to the Jewish people and they have turned the heart of many to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And now many of these Jewish people are going to have to go and hide in the rocks and the caves because Jesus is going to come and redeem them and take them to be eternally with him in heaven. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. I love you, my brother and my sister. Today is the last day of this month. We are now working on the money for next month. This month is covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. A man sent a check yesterday. He said, I sold my extra truck. I'm sending you an offering out of that. And he sent $300 toward radio. Chris, thank you. And many others, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. This word must go forth. Now you can write to me. I'll give you the address. No, we're just about out of time. Maybe I have time. Let me give it to you quickly. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia. Two two one nine five. You can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you, my brother and my sister. I pray this has been helpful. I've come to you as a Bible student trying to understand these wonderful things of revelation. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> 